Right, Trinity Church, it is great to be with you. My name is Todd Arnett, lead pastor here, and, uh, and I, we, again, appreciate your flexibility and agility to be able to just change with us week in and week out. We talked as a staff this last week, just the incredible challenges of trying to anticipate how to make good decisions about gathering together when um, there's weather that is always changing. And so here we are. And so we appreciate we had 270 of you gathering with us uh, morning and evening last Sunday. And so we are sorry to not be able to gather with you that way today. But um, God had different plans. And so we are grateful for a production team, grateful for leadership from Bill Bourne and Chris Dowdy to be able to just pivot back indoors. And for you to be able to be watching today, some of you watching live with us uh, in your pajamas with um, a waffles and a fire in the fireplace. And so we're grateful at least for that opportunity. And uh, we're excited. We're planning on being back outdoors with you as well as online uh, next weekend, uh, weather permitting. So thanks again for flexing with us and just being able to continue to deal with those challenges the way that we are and working well with us. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, some things that are coming up. We have a Yay God. We've been working on some planning already uh, for our Thanksgiving services. And so uh, as we think about that this year, we had some great conversations, uh, Bill and Chris and I, talking about what to anticipate this year, even related to today when it comes to weather and thinking about our Thanksgiving Eve service that we've done annually for years. And we thought this year what might be a great idea, and we'll give you more details on this to come, uh, would be really that of creating a great video resource for you to engage as a family, as a gathering on Thanksgiving Eve or Thanksgiving Day or even the week of Thanksgiving uh, that we are working on right now. We're very grateful for our good friend Carrie Van Loon, who's done an amazing job doing so much video work and editing with us, and we are planning on creating that a video resource and having that available to you the week of Thanksgiving. So more details coming on that, but I just wanted to give you that heads up that you can anticipate that coming and uh, being available soon. Well, in this series, we're back today uh, walking through Ephesians 6 and talking about uh, spiritual battle. If you have a Bible today, you can open your Bible to Ephesians 6, and you can uh, be finding your way to your notes if you have notes that you've either printed off or notes that are available to you through our app. We'd love for you to tr track with us that way today and follow along, and uh, you will be ready to kind of dive in together uh, with that. So what we've been doing is we've been walking through this uh, chapter, this last part of Ephesians 6, noting the biblical uh, armor that we've been given, spiritual armor for spiritual battle. And the whole goal has been trying to raise our gaze and be able to understand that the battle that is going on is a battle that is very much in the realm of the spiritual uh, and not just what you can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. And that's what we've been trying to tune our ears to, tune our, our hearts to, to be able to engage in spiritual battle with spiritual armor. And so we've been walking through this book together and really trying to identify who really is the enemy. We've asked that question week in and week out over this series. Is the enemy the government? Is the enemy the other political party? Is the enemy someone of a different ethnicity? Is the enemy someone at Trinity Church who dares to disagree with me on any of these issues or more? And we've been talking about in this series that we are not each other's enemies, 
The Bible's really clear that we are identified as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's why we have even taken this tact when we have especially been gathering together in these last couple of months, is to stand up, to look each other in the face, and to be able to say, we're on the same team. I love you, even if we don't agree on everything. And those words couldn't be more important this week with everything that we have been praying about and and really preparing you for for this week of election and then moving forward now as things still seem to be being worked out and a lot of challenges that are still in front of us as a country. So I would just encourage you, let's take that to heart. And as we do, let's identify who the real enemy is, who really is our enemy. And we've identified that it's none other than God's enemy, Satan himself, and that he is out to steal, kill, and destroy what God loves most, and that's you. So what we've done, what we've realized is as the children of God, we've been armed as the battalion of God, as his soldiers, ready to engage in spiritual battle. Today, what we're going to be looking at specifically is how Paul likens the Word of God to a sword, the only offensive weapon mentioned in all of the armor that is described in Ephesians 6. And we're going to see how to engage God's Word in spiritual battle. Take a look at our now what statement. It says this, utilize the authoritative, transformative Word of God in spiritual battle like Jesus did. That's what our walk away, this is what we're doing this week with the passage that we're looking at, utilizing the authoritative, transformative Word of God in spiritual battle like Jesus did. Number one in your notes today, God's Word defends against and attacks our enemy in spiritual battle. God's Word defends against and attacks our enemy in spiritual battle. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. We'll back up to verse 13 to just kind of read through this uh, description of spiritual armor. It says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that's uh, the passage as we've been walking through it, and we're continuing in these aspects of spiritual armor like we have seen. We've seen that God has resourced us or armed us with His righteousness, with faith, with with truth, with the gospel, with His salvation, and today with His Word. Um, as we look at this passage, it began with this word take, this verse, uh, verse 17. And take is the same verb attributed to what we looked at last week, the helmet of salvation. And it's this imperative verb, but it's a second person plural. It's what we've seen all throughout this uh, book, this last part of Ephesians 6. These are all y'all type verbs given to all of us for all of us to engage together. So take meaning take and receive it gladly. That's that word that we saw. Take in our English translation looks a little bit more like just pick it up, but it means to receive gladly, welcome in reception. This great attribute or this great article of armor. Last week, the helmet of salvation, but attributed now also to the sword of the Spirit. 
Paul's original audience, they would have understood what this sword was and, and what it meant um, a little bit maybe differently than we would. Um, when we think of swords, this is a, a Roman gladiator sword. I'm so grateful to my, Kim, my friend Kim um, uh, Simons, who just has all these great props. And Kim uh, I got out for me two types of swords. This would be a Roman gladiator sword, and we're used to this from the movies and seeing these kinds of swords, maybe with that small circular shield and being able to do warfare that way. But this Greek verb for uh, a sword in this passage in Ephesians 6 would have been this Roman short sword. This is what Paul's first century audience would have understood. Um, and in this, what's an interesting thing, this Greek word, actually, it's a, a pretty rough word. It means a slaughter knife. It's crazy. That's a, that's a powerful word. But it really is, looks like more like a long knife than anything. And as you note, when we talked a couple weeks ago, the way that Roman soldiers, they didn't have those small circular shields. They had these long shields called little doors. They were huge. And in that, as they strapped that on with one arm, they would be able to fight in close proximity with this short sword otherwise. So this is the sword that's being referred to here in Ephesians chapter 6. See how the author of Hebrews likens God's Word to the same sort of sword. This is the same Greek word used in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, for the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That's the same Greek word for what we just saw here in Ephesians 6. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So we see the author of Ephesians says it's not only, it's not an inanimate object, but alive and active, having the ability to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So even as we begin today talking about the Word of God, I want you to note this in your notes. We're given a weapon that first is to be used upon ourselves. It's kind of an odd concept, but think about what we just read in Hebrews 4, to be able to discern the heart. So first able to be, to be used upon ourselves, a valuable resource for exposing our own thoughts and attitudes of the heart before we use it against our enemy. So the Word of God has multi-purposes, but specifically it needs to begin doing a work in us before we ever use it against the enemy. Notice where this sword originates from, that it is of the Spirit or given to us from the Spirit. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul clarifies that how Scripture is connected to the Holy Spirit specifically. Look what he writes here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, uh, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it begins by saying all Scripture is God-breathed or Spirit-inspired, given by this uh, utterance, this understanding from the Holy Spirit to authors who pen these words. And as a result, it has great value to us beyond even that of spiritual battle, things like teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And note again, again, how purposeful the Word of God is. Why is this? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. In that passage, for every good work, and as we see today, to engage in spiritual battle. 
Commentator Stephen Cole sees the correlation between God's Spirit and God's Word really well. Take a look at this quote. It's in your notes. It says, when we come to the Word, we need the Spirit to give us insight and understanding. To study the Word academically, even in the original languages, but without reliance on the Holy Spirit, may yield information, but not but not the power that we need to overcome Satan's schemes. Since the Spirit is the source of the Word, we must rely on Him when we come to the Word. That is a great quote, very powerful, related to uh, what we're talking about in spiritual battle today, not just having the sword of the Spirit, but how important it is that we realize the Holy Spirit's role in making the Word of God alive and useful to us. Paul goes on to clear it with clarity concerning what this sword is, not just that it's of the Spirit, but specifically the Word of God. The Greek word used here is the word rhema, and rhema means the Lord speaking His dynamic, living Word in a believer to produce faith. Listen to that again. Rhema means the Lord speaking His dynamic, living Word in a believer to produce faith. So that word rhema can be understood maybe in a lot of different ways, but what it keeps boiling back down to is the Bible that you're holding in your hands or looking at on your phone today or on your electronic device. This is what we're talking about in Ephesians 6. God has given us His Word so that we might defend against and attack our enemy in spiritual battle. By the way, the word that's most often used or the word we're most accustomed to in um, Greek that we translate in English to the word word is the word logos. And that word that we use often is found at the beginning of John's gospel to describe Jesus' incarnation, Jesus' entry into our world, he became the word. It's a sneak peek that I want to give you today, focusing on what our, our teaching series is going to be come Christmas in just a month from now, is we're going to focus on the opening of John chapter 1, and we're going to talk about this theme of fullness, Jesus came to bring a better gift. So I'm excited that just in a few weeks from now, we'll begin a new Christmas teaching series and be excited about celebrating Jesus' gift to us. That's the same that our chart identifies today as well, this chart that we've been using throughout the series. Note that the armor that we're talking about today is the sword of the Spirit. Realize that every time we've looked at this, these pieces of armor, we've realized that they connect back to the person and the character in Christ. And as we are in Christ as followers of His, we realize Jesus is the Word of God not only given to us in Scripture, but actually the Word, back from what we just mentioned in John 1, He is the Word, the expression of God. And our practice in life, what are we supposed to do with the Scriptures? The Word of God, we are to know the Word, live it, and proclaim it. So let's continue on today and see how are we supposed to engage God's Word in spiritual battle. Number two in your notes today, Jesus modeled for us how to use the Word of God in spiritual battle. Jesus showed us how the Word of God is supposed to be engaged, supposed to be used in spiritual battle. We go back to the Gospels in Matthew chapter 4, look at this encounter. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> That's an understatement, by the way. Um, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Man, this is an incredibly powerful exchange, the specific account of Jesus being tempted personally by his enemy, by our enemy, Satan himself. I was thinking about this passage today. I have been leading a, a really wonderful discussion as we um, on a Zoom call every Thursday for the last five or six weeks. And it's been so refreshing. We began in Genesis, and we're just reading a chapter a day. It's going to be in 180 days, this guided tour of the Bible. But we had an amazing conversation about Adam and Eve being tempted in Genesis 3, and I couldn't help think back to that as I was reading in Matthew 4 how Jesus responds to the tempter the way that Adam and Eve should have. And what we're going to see today is that they had every resource that Jesus did. I'll show you what I mean by that. Um, note here in this passage that there are two different names uh, for Satan that are used here. One is that of the slanderer that we mentioned is the name primarily used in Ephesians 6, and we talked about the uniqueness of that name, Satan slandering, uh, slandering us to God and, and helping us begin to think that we really aren't uh, maybe his children really aren't forgiven, really aren't able to come to him or, or truly armored well, resourced well, equipped well for spiritual battle. But the other word that's used here is that of the tempter. And that's exactly what this passage portrays, is him tempting Jesus to, and this is the definition of tempting, an, an attempt to entice someone to act contrary to God's will. That's exactly what Satan is up to in an attempt to entice someone to act contrary to God's will. Now, you'll, you'll note the incredibly severe circumstances that Jesus is in, fasting from food and water for 40 days. He was a physical, just a, just a wreck at this point in terms of what his body was being sustained by. But we see in every instance, he responds to Satan's temptations simply and clearly with Scripture. Notice that all of Jesus' responses, when you look at the footnotes, they actually all come from Moses' beginning um, speech or, or uh, preaching in the book of Deuteronomy, and they come two from chapter 6, one from chapter 8. So there's some even uniqueness of Jesus could have quoted all of the Pentateuch, all of the first five books, all of the former covenant would have been assembled by that time, Genesis to Malachi. But yet Jesus chooses to quote from Deuteronomy in these two different chapters in Moses as he's sharing with a group of Israelites that are going to go into the promised land, this new generation, and of which he is not going to join them. So there's some uniqueness about the specific passages that Jesus chooses to quote. 
I want you to note something. Note that Jesus didn't add commentary to these quotes from Moses, nor did he need um, to spend significant time explaining the context to the tempter as he came to him. There were simply pointed responses to the tempter's temptation, and once Satan heard these words, he would just simply try a new tactic until Jesus finally said, enough. Now, Satan adds an especially challenging layer to his temptation by quoting Scripture himself. He quotes from the book of Psalms back to Jesus about how God would demonstrate his care for him if he were to jump from this building. Interestingly enough, we see that same use in the garden with Adam and Eve, Satan bringing back God's words or at least a version of them for Adam and Eve to stumble around. In this case, this demonstrates what's really important for us is that we need to understand the context, not that we always necessarily even need to share it, but we need to understand the context of where Scripture is at rather than just looking up on our computer or on our phone on an app and finding a word that we want or need or like and then simply being able to throw that out there. Because Jesus knew the context of what Satan was throwing at him and knew more significant even though that might be true of what the psalmist writes, God said, do not put me to the test. I think of a great illustration of this in my life. As a youth pastor, we would take students down to Mexico to work with APU's huge Mexicali outreach. And one of the years we did that, we had this, uh, our youth group in Oregon drove all the way down to be a part of one of these spring break trips. And we had a great girl on our team named Shanta. And Shanta's whole responsibility, her leadership that week, was to remind us to pray, remind us to pray, remind us to pray. And she did an amazing job, and she would often use Scripture to demonstrate how to do that. One night, as we gathered together, she shared this verse with our team so that we would remember to pray. This is the passage from 1 Corinthians 7. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may, and here's that phrase, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, By doing some uh, concordance work or an app to be able to find a verse on prayer, this is powerful. But I told Shanta later on, Shanta, this whole passage is in the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And we're talking to a bunch of high school students that none of them are married. All of them are appropriately single. We don't want them to come back together again at the end of this uh, (laughs) uh, reading that we're here tonight. And, um, and, and, And that they should be depriving each other at this point. So giving more context to the story, and she was great. She was incredibly just, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't read around that verse. And and that's what can happen to us when we just begin to kind of pull verses out and forget that there is a context that um, gives these verses meaning and helps us understand what we can know. But I want you to hear this today. Even if the comparison, as we're looking at this today, and we're seeing what Jesus did when Satan came and personally tempted him, if that comparison is too hard to stomach, it's so much of a stretch. Todd, this is the Son of God going head-to-head with Satan. I I couldn't begin to respond the same way. I want you to see something that's really important. Look in your notes. Realize this today. Jesus' only tactic to oppose Satan's temptations was that um, was what was equally available to you. Engaging God's word is a sword against the enemy. Read that again. 
Jesus' only tactic to oppose Satan's temptation is, temptations was what is equally available to you, engaging God's Word as a sword against the enemy. I want you to track that today. Jesus did not do something above and beyond what you and I have the ability to do. Could he have called upon supernatural power? Could he have done something so incredibly strong because he indeed is God and is over everything, including Satan himself? Absolutely. But see, realize that Jesus' temptation was not only the fact that he was tempted, but it was a model, an example for us to do what to do when we're tempted. Look at this great quote. This is a book that I've been reminding you of, Spiritual Warfare and the Storyline of Scripture. Another great quote from it today. Jesus did not use supernatural powers to defeat the devil in the wilderness, but God's holy word. Look how. Understood, believed, and obeyed. This same word is available to every believer in the battle against the spiritual forces of darkness. That is a really powerful thing to stop and see today, that what we're talking about is Jesus employed the sword of the Spirit, which has also been given to us to use in spiritual battle. He did not resort to any other supernatural means aside from the supernatural gift of Scripture, available to you and available to me. See clearly that Jesus modeled for us what we are to be able to do as well. Now, I want you to know it's doubtful that Satan will personally appear to you and tempt you personally, but what will he do? What are some of his tactics and some of his strategies with which we need to defeat him with the sword of the Spirit? Here are a few. He'll incorporate all kinds of communication strategies available to him to entice you to doubt the goodness of God. Perhaps he'll even use close friends or family members to entice you to behave in a manner contrary to what God has clearly commanded. Or maybe he'll use random messages or people who cross your path, who draw you into traps. James 1 talks about that, being drawn into a snare, alluring you with pleasures that you have longed to experience. These are all types of strategies and tactics that Satan uses against us. But when he does, rather than invoking willpower, rather than simply trying to debate the tempter, instead utilize the sword of the Spirit to recall and speak Scripture into the moment of temptation. The gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation isn't there simply to tell us Jesus was tempted by Satan but to give us a guide, to give us an example, to model for us, this is what we ought to do when we're tempted by the tempter. The first thing to note is that Jesus took seriously the power and the use of Scripture to battle temptation. He didn't just have general ideas about Scripture, but he used a specific language to combat the enemy. That's a motto even in our denomination. Trinity Church is a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, the EFCA. And one of these statements that I became aware of shortly after coming to Trinity is a really wonderful, powerful statement. This is kind of a motto that we use, where stands it written? It sounds like formal language, where stands it written? Because what you've seen today, what did Jesus say? For it is written, and he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. 
So the question we ask ourselves, where stands a written meaning? We want Scripture to be the authority, to be the baseline by which we make decisions and by which we understand how we ought to respond. I think of the youth group that I grew up in just up the road in Yukaipa, and I had a youth pastor who just did a great job. Our youth group liked to debate and talk about biblical topics or just current events, but I really appreciated what he did. He moved us from opinion to authority. And what he would often say as a conversation began is he'd just look at one of us and he would say, hey, chapter and verse. What is so important to you, what you want to share, just show me that that's more than your opinion. Show me where the Bible says what you are saying. And they were always, we were always encouraged, don't just make stuff up, don't just bring up an opinion, make sure it's rooted in the Word of God, chapter and verse. And that was a great uh, just example to me as a young man to value the Word of God as I do today. But then there arises a problem If this is the manner by which Jesus refuted temptation, what if you don't have Scripture readily available to you? Meaning, what if you don't have it accessible to be able to put back in a tempting situation? Well, the reality is you have a problem. You have a problem because what Jesus has modeled is something that we are to do, and if we don't have Scripture readily available to put back into a tempting situation, we won't be able to use the sword of the Spirit as it's intended to be. So simple question, where do you begin? The Bible is a big book, 66 books long. Where do you begin to understand how to do that? One of the things that I just want to remind you of, many of you grew up in church, and you grew up as a child memorizing Scripture, and somehow, as you got older, you and I began to think that memorizing Scripture was for children so you can get that piece of candy that your wonderful third-grade teacher offered you. But that Scripture had much more value than the immediate reward, but the long-term reward of hiding it in your heart. Our rooted program that we have been utilizing, we're in our fourth iteration here at Trinity Church, really incorporates that every single week in a 10-week series, there is a passage to memorize at the beginning of a rooted chapter. And, and we, the groups that I have been in, have taken that seriously. I want to remind you, if you are going to be involved in spiritual battle and to be able to use the sword of the Spirit It's going to need to be more than just an app you have on your phone. You're going to need to have it here in your mind, ready to use and engage in a moment when temptation arises. Uh, What I've put for you today, I was looking online, I found some great verses on David Jeremiah's blog, and they're specific to the idea of temptation. If you go to this link, you'll be able to find some examples of at least a place to start, rather than going, well, there's 66 books, Todd, that doesn't help me a lot, here's at least a place to begin, or the next time when you join us in Rooted, that'll be a part of the Rooted experience, and I'd encourage you when we start another session again, join us for that. Finally today, number three in your notes, we prepare for spiritual battle when we embrace God's word as authoritative and transformative. We prepare for spiritual battle when we embrace God's word as authoritative and transformative. Look here in, your, uh, in the Bible together from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I love this verse, Paul writing to the young church. He says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, 
You accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed, which is indeed at work in you who believe. These are incredibly affirming words that the Apostle Paul gives to this young church that he helped plant. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians is a beautiful chapter describing Paul's personal ministry among the Christians at Thessalonica. And as he is doing that, he shares with them, he notes that they didn't receive Scripture that they heard as merely human words. This is Paul's opinion. Instead, they received it as genuinely from God himself. Now, this is a, obviously a significant challenge when you're talking to people who don't have a value for God's Word, who don't see it as truly the Word of God, but even more so for us at times, even though we do believe it to be the inspired Word of God, how often we can neglect certain passages that just bring so much conviction we don't want to deal or maybe other passages we just go, well, there's a lot of interpretation challenges that go with that, rather than going, God, this word really means what it says, and it matters. These tendencies were on the pastors' and directors' minds when we were developing our core values last fall. And as we did, uh, it describes how we should approach God's word together. Look at one of our core values. The Bible is God's story given to transform you and to be the authority in your life. The Bible is God's story given to transform you, to change you, and to be the authority, to be the standard in your life. These words are really important to us, and we believe that. That's what the Bible, the Bible might be a lot more things, but at its core, these are two elemental things that need to be true of the way we approach the Word of God. You see, we want to be like the Thessalonian Christians in this manner, to see that the Bible is not just about God, it is, it's his story, but to see that it's specifically given with purpose, especially that of being authoritative and transformative. These Thessalonian Christians believe that as God is the creator of the universe, that he had the right to tell them. These are the very words of not a God, but the God. He had the right to tell them how to live towards him and towards others. It's not given as a book of suggestions. It's not a guideline. It's meant to be authoritative for their decisions, their actions, their behaviors, their words, and their attitudes. Additionally, God's word isn't meant to just be generally read and known. But like we read earlier, it has the power to change us, to transform us when we read it with that in mind, like the second part of the verse we read, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Not just authoritative, but actually changing me at work in who I am. There are far too many people occupying seats in churches who know a lot of the Bible and even might have parts of it memorized but it has not changed them. It's not been transformative in their life, who have been people who've been changed after meeting with God and with his word. So I thought today the best way to demonstrate this idea of the authoritative, transformative work of Scripture was to be able to ask some of our staff to come up and read from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a powerful chapter in the Bible that's a, a Hebrew acrostic, meaning each letter, each stanza in this, uh, this is the longest chapter in Scripture. We're not going to read all of it, but we're going to read nine of the 22 stanzas today. And as we read through them, and as you hear them, realize that each one of them comes from the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza begins with that following letter. David writes these words to say, look at the Word of God, look at its value, look at how I see it as authoritative, 
and transformative in my life. And for us to say, we want to have a heart and attitude of Scripture like David did. Let's listen as these read today. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws all, at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed, those who stray from your commands. Remove me from their scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Teach me, Lord, the weight of your decrees, that I might follow them to the end. Give me understanding so that I might keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in your path of your commands, for there I will find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worldless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that, I, so that you might be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Preserve my life. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statues. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth, and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. 
They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word and let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from human oppression that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and detest falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. I'm so grateful for each one that has shared and read today, and I want you to see our now what statement. And what, like we've done all throughout this series, we have encouraged you to take some moments to reflect upon not just what we've talked about today, but what this looks like in your life this week. Utilize the authoritative, transformative Word of God in spiritual battle like Jesus did. We're going to give you a couple moments to pray and reflect, and then we'll pull you back together with a final song today.